Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. The Welcome to The Second Degree, your double dose of depravity. It's me, Jack, with Lex. You know us. Unless, Here we are. Unless you don't, and then that would be really weird. <laughs> that would be weird because, I mean, we hope. That's the case. I mean, we want to, to people to flock here and not really know why, I guess. But we always just assume that our, the best of the best are our true crime besties are all here. Yes, we hope you're having a good day. Um, I think that today marks a really interesting day in our first degree, the first seat underground, our Patreon. We are starting to finally take your submissions. So today's case is the first submission that one of you sent in that I'm going to read the email in a little bit. But uh, we get a lot of like people asking about cases. Maybe they're kind of connected to the case, but not close enough to be a first degree and are really interested in it. So a reminder to send in your submissions through Patreon. You Definitely. Know? And that's what these are. The submissions we have are like, hey, I'm not close enough for a first degree, but I went to high school with them. Or I'm not close enough to be a first degree, but I went to the trial. Right. And so we totally want to um, validate all of those experiences too, because it does feel so stranger than fiction to be even just sort of connected to something. So yeah. You know, with our original format, we could never cover stuff people requested because people came to us, and that was kind of our rule. But all bets are off here on Patreon. Exactly. Yeah. Even a second or third degree is still out of this world, bizarre feeling. So that's right. That's what we're jumping in today. Do you want me to read the email that we got? Yeah. Please, like, give us some context into how this person is familiarized with the case. Okay. So this is from Sagan Sanders. Cool fucking name. Cool name. I mean. Amazing. Amazing. So Sagan says, I was an I was a high school senior in 2007 when his case finally went to trial. And by that time, I was interning at our local news station, KGET 17. One of the local reporters, Tiyoshi Tomono, was covering the massive trial. And I had the opportunity to skip school, hell yeah, and go to the opening day of the trial with him. As a 17-year-old girl who had been obsessed. Oh my gosh, Sagan is a girl. Love this even more. Wow. Love the androgynous vibes of the name. As a 17-year-old girl who had been obsessed with SVU, this was going to be a huge culture shock for me to go into a real courthouse at this point, and I just jumped at the opportunity. I just remember sitting in the courtroom and understanding how cold this man was. Ooh. Fast forward to 2012. This is weird, too, okay? This is another, like, a, not close enough to be a first degree, but weird coincidence. Totally. She says, fast forward to 2012. My husband and I are married and he's doing production work. We would get a lot of calls for camera work or location scouting or whatever, especially in our area because it looks like the desert. It's really cheap to film there and we can be as gorilla as, or professional as we need to be. My hubby gets a call for a TV show called Forensic Files. I mean, only my favorite TV show of Never all time. Never heard of that one. And he ends up working on this episode called Insect 
evidence. The main case in the episode focused on was Vincent Brothers. Now, this is who we're going to be talking about today. She said, my husband was working on the set and ended up driving the rented Dodge Neon in the episode to recreate the scene. So this will all make sense as we get a little bit, obviously, into the episode. So Right. And we don't want to see any more. No, we can't say any more because we no. don't want to spoil the whole thing. But then she just says, I hope you guys look into this um, and a few of the links. That's a very interesting story. Thank you so much. And again, I love you all. So Sagan. thank you, Sagan. Thank you. Thank you for sending this case. It is a freaking doozy of a case. Um, so we're going to get right into it, I think, right? That's right. Right now. Okay, so today's case is going to take us back to July 6th of 2003. It was a Sunday under the astrological sign of cancer, and it was the year of the goat. Crazy in Love by Beyonce and Jay-Z was at the top of the radio, and Terminator 3, Legally Blonde 2, and Hulk were playing in movie theaters. Right. And the setting for today's case is Bakersfield, California. So in the 1800s, the area was named after Thomas Baker. And Baker was a lawyer and a colonel from Ohio who moved to the area during the gold rush. And the area is in California's Central Valley, which stretches from Bakersfield in the south up to Sacramento in the north. And today, the city is the 62nd largest metropolitan area in the U.S. and is home to almost 1 million people, which is so interesting because... I feel like Jack and I have driven through Bakersfield to get to Vegas. Like, you kind of have to pass through it. And I don't remember it being just metropolitan at all. Like, that is a don't think it is. I think that might be a little bit of a stretch. (laughs) No, but, like, I do believe there's a million people there. But I have to tell you, all of you, if you ever drive through it, you feel like you're in a scary town from a movie. Like Like a scary desert town. Uh, for example, when I've seen a bunch of TikToks that show really beautiful beaches in California, like it'll it'll be a secret cove in Laguna Beach, and then to throw people off, people will be like, "Oh my God, Bakersfield is so amazing this time of year." So it's definitely like not California dreaming per se, but no. you know, it is what it is. It sure is, and it serves its purpose. I mean, people live there. Exactly. <laughs> So at the heart of it today in our case is the Brothers Harper family. So we're going to introduce them to you. There's Vincent Brothers and Joni Harper, a husband and wife who got married in the year 2000. Vincent and Joni both worked at the Bakersfield school system. And with Vincent beginning his career as a substitute teacher in 1987 and working his way all the way up to vice principal of John C. Fremont Elementary School in 1995. So let's talk a little bit about Vincent. So Vincent had received his master's degree in education from a California state university, and he received a bachelor's degree from Norfolk State University in Norfolk, Virginia. Now let's talk about Joni. So she too had worked for the Bakerfields School District as a campus supervisor. And one of her main focuses was campus safety. And she just wanted to make sure the students there were safe and secure. And that's kind of something she oversaw at school. And Vincent and Joni would have three kids together. They had a four-year-old son named Mark, and they had a one-year-old daughter named Lindsay. And then their youngest was a six-week-old boy named Marshall who arrived May of 2003. Right. And as far as extended family, Joni was very close to her mother, Ernestine Harper. And they were so close, in fact, that Ernestine ended up living with them to help with raising these three rambunctious kids because three kids is so much work. Oh, my God. I can't imagine. I truly can't imagine. I can't imagine one kid. (laughs) I just have such admiration for power moms like this who handle this kind of business because, I mean, I'm a mess. So 
people in their neighborhood said that Ernestine was sort of this leader and she was really into civil rights and she was really religious. She always wore Sunday best to church. She was like a church going, you know, um, social justice warrior, which is pretty badass. So this was a family of six that was living in the Central Valley. And with the birth of their youngest son, Marshall, it was pretty happy for everybody. And once baby Marshall hit that six-week mark, she was eager to introduce him to all of her friends, which included their extended community at church. So this is bringing us to Sunday, July 6th, and everybody in the household put on their Sunday best and headed off to church. However, it was only Ernestine, Joni, and the three kids who were attending because husband Vincent was out of town visiting his brother Melvin in Ohio. Right. So the ladies, they take the kids to church, they have a blast, and then after church, they went out with friends for lunch, which is kind of like, I think, the after church tradition. You always see that like at IHOP, at Denny's, at Cheesecake Factory, like people are looking all snazzy when they show up. Yep. And they're all feeling... They're all feeling inspired after an amazing sermon or something. What It's just... It's what people do. They go out to breakfast or lunch after church. Exactly. But this family, they were so religious that they were actually planning to return to church in the evening for the evening services. But they were going home in the meantime. After all, Marshall was six weeks old. You know, they had a four-year-old, a one-year-old. They needed to all take a nap midday. Yeah, and they, then they can't be out to, all day. <laughs> yeah, not with kids that young, right? And mom, of course, and grandma probably both needed naps as well, given all the handling of that. So they go home, they take a nap, but they never return to church. And their church friends who were expecting them back start to get worried and they called them, but there was no answer. And two whole days went by and still calls to the brother's house went completely unanswered. One person who became especially concerned was Joni's best friend named Kelsey. And this was not like Joni whatsoever to not answer the calls, to not show up for church, whatever. So Kelsey drove by her house on Tuesday, July 8th. And she was going to check things out, and she knew she'd be able to get into the house since Joni had given her a spare key in case of emergencies. Right. So Kelsey pulls up to the house, and everything looks normal. And things continue to look normal as she walks up to the front door. But then she sticks her key in the lock and tried to turn the key, but it wouldn't work. So my instinct there is to think that maybe there's a deadbolt um, Mm -hmm. enabled or something. Like, for some reason, this key wasn't doing the trick. But She was undeterred because she was concerned. So she then walked around to the back of the house because there's a patio door in the back that normally was unlocked. Um, So that was what she was hoping, and it was. So she walks inside, and once she does, she learned why no one had answered the door. And the truth about that was horrifying. So Kelsey called out for Joni when she walked inside, but things were just eerily quiet for her. She walked down the hallway that led to the bedrooms, and then she saw Joni's mom, Ernestine, lying on the floor, and she had been shot twice in the face. A pistol was on the floor next to her. Then Kelsey continued to walk down the hallway, and she approached the master bedroom. In there, she made more horrific discoveries. So she finds Joni and the three children in bed together. All of them were dead. All had been shot, except Joni had also been stabbed. So this has to be one of the most horrifying things to discover in the history of life. Like, I really can't imagine finding a friend in this state and how scary that would be. Um, She managed, although she was in shock, to call 911, and this was all happening around 7 a.m. that morning. 
So the police arrived at the Third Street home moments later, and even seasoned officers would struggle with a scene like this. Obviously, it literally sounds absolutely horrific, and there was three murdered children. Immediately, the police start questioning who could have possibly done something like this. The police learned about the family's Sunday church plans from two days prior and figured that they were killed sometime after the morning church service, obviously before the second. And they made this deduction based on the fact that they never returned to that evening church service. Right. So when this happens, the police, the first thing they're going to do is they turn to the person who made this discovery. They turn to Kelsey, right? Because Kelsey had a key. So that means she's obviously close to the family and she walked in. So they have to question her for several reasons, right? And one of the first things they want to know is like, where are the, where is the father to these children? Where's the husband to Joni? Yeah. And she explains that Vincent was out of town visiting family, and he had been for at least five or six days. And then she elaborates a little bit more on the situation. It turns out Vincent actually didn't fully live at this house. He had, because of marital problems, gone his own apartment across town and hadn't been living with them for some time. So if you were a police officer, at least if you were a good one, you would hear this and you'd go, well, that's something to look into, a contentious relationship. We all know what they say. They always say it's the husband. So the police are going to want to look at Vincent. Um, could he have done this? Did he do it? So with that, in learning he's out of town, they work to start tracking him down right away. As news of what happened to this family started spreading, this small Bakersfield community was horrified. They were shocked. They were also terrified, especially because this was a really well-known family. They were highly involved in their church. Plus, Vincent and Joni both worked at the school where most of their children went, so a lot of people knew who they were, especially with Vincent being the vice principal. They appeared, at least outwardly, to be one of those perfect families. And when police tried to make sense of the other variables at the scene, they zeroed in on that pistol that was lying on the ground next to where Ernestine had fallen. So was this gun the murder weapon, or had Ernestine tried to grab it to protect her and her family from this intruder? Another thing the police noticed is that the house seemed to be ransacked, so could this have been a random burglary gone completely wrong? So an autopsy would corroborate what the police had suspected about at least the timeline of events. So testing determined that the murders happened sometime after 1 p.m. on that Sunday. And, you know, with that, what are they going to do with that, though? That's helpful, but who did it? Yeah. Either way, the magnitude of the loss of life in this case was pretty incomprehensible. These two women and these three kids were just shot and left to die. Why, how, and by who? And who would actually know they were home alone? So – you know, what about the patriarch of this family, Vincent, who was 100 miles away? Um, where did he fit into this whole equation? So remember, Vincent was basically on the other side of the country in Ohio when the murder scene was discovered, and he had been gone for six days at this point. So the police made some phone calls in an effort to find out where exactly he was, and they learned that he was no longer in Ohio. So it turns out Vincent and his brother Melvin had driven down to North Carolina to visit their mother. Right. And that's exactly where they tracked him down. And it's there that Vincent learned what had happened to his family. And he was distraught and he agreed to meet with North Carolina police detectives to kind of be questioned and briefed about everything that had occurred. So I guess Bakersfield detectives had called North Carolina police, like, help us out here. Right. And that's what's going on. And when Vincent sat down with them, he learned quickly that he was the main suspect in this case. 
In fact, the police were so convinced that Vincent was responsible based on what Kelsey had said about their contentious marriage that they actually had him arrested that same day. But Vincent denied that he was the one who did this. In fact, he said it was impossible. He had been in Ohio the entire time, and he could prove it several ways. So, you know, it's day one of this investigation. And it turns out by the end of day two, this police department had to admit that they were kind of overzealous. And they ultimately released Vincent because they had no evidence to hold him other than sort of this suspicion that Kelsey had um, created in saying that their marriage was rocky, right? But it turns out all of the evidence that the police had at this point actually seemed to point away from Vincent. Right, because detectives found Vincent's blue pickup truck at an airport bus terminal in Bakersfield, and this is where it had been left since July 2nd when he left for his trip. And even though the police didn't have the murder weapon itself, a background search revealed that Vincent didn't have any registered weapons. And it turns out that the pistol that was found at the crime scene had belonged to Joni's mom, Ernestine. And when investigators pulled Vincent's phone and bank records, they found out that not only were Vincent's credit cards used in Columbus, Ohio on the day of the murders, but his cell phone also pinged in that area as well. So like every piece of evidence is putting him in Ohio at this point. So it was looking like the police had jumped the gun completely by arresting him and Vincent's alibi seemed to really hold up. So you can't really be in two places at once. And Vincent had been their only viable suspect, which meant that the Bakersfield detectives were really hitting a roadblock at this point. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply.
so now it was time to explore other possibilities, right? Like the husband had an alibi, time to look elsewhere. So because the house had been ransacked, they wonder, is this a random robbery? Or could there be another man in Joni's life who may have been responsible? I mean, if both of them had other relationships, if they were on and off, truly anything was possible, including the possibility that Vincent had another woman in his life who maybe wanted mm, to get yeah. rid of any responsibilities Vincent may have had to anyone else. So, meanwhile, while the police are regrouping, Vincent is traveling back to Bakersfield from the East Coast. Um, and imagine how he probably felt, right? He had all these funeral arrangements make, you know, five of his family members had been brutally killed. That's insane. Um, and, you know, he was in that time trying to figure out how to pick up all these broken, fragmented pieces of his destroyed family. And, you know, you're probably a shell of a person at this point. I can't even imagine. Me either. So crazy. So this crime really rattled this community. Obviously, it's insane. And the Oakland Tribune reported that several thousand people were in attendance for the funerals. Vincent was crying and sitting in mourning with the family that he had left. And meanwhile, the police were just really at a loss for leads. So at this point, they decided to re-strategize. They were going to focus on trying to uncover a motive. Why would somebody do something like this? Right. So their decision, as far as their plan, they were going to do a deep dive into the brother's family to see if there were any other skeletons in their closets. So what would they find? Could someone else in the family be responsible? Lots of questions and all very good ones. You know the drill. We've got to go back. So when looking at the history of Joni and Vincent's relationship, investigators learned that Joni was not Vincent's brother's first wife. In fact, she was his third wife. And according to court records and police reports, Vincent had been married twice before. He had one daughter named Margaret from his first marriage, and it turns out these two marriages before Joni weren't really great either. In fact, in 1988, during his first marriage, Vincent was convicted of spousal abuse and served six days in jail. Right. And now you know he's been married three times. And it's not just issues in the first marriage. There were issues in the second marriage as well. Uh, for example, in 1992, Vincent's second wife filed for a restraining order against him. And she said Vincent was, quote, violent and has threatened to kill me. That's not all, though. Um, there were even allegations connected to his job that was within the Bakersfield School District that were pretty serious. Yeah. So these allegations included one from a female school employee who later alleged that he brought her into the bathroom, assaulted her and took photos of her. Like what the hell? And according to her story, she tried to call the police, but Vincent pulled the phone away from her. She managed to escape the situation and drove off in her car. And this employee made other allegations, which included improper touching at school and harassing phone calls. So this is not, this is not great. No, and this kind of thing makes you wonder. So if this is true, why didn't anything happen? Why wasn't Vincent charged or at least fired? According to the victim, she intended to file charges, but when she went to the police, an officer actually discouraged her from filing charges against Vincent. And the reason for this he gave her was that Vincent was, quote, a role model in the community, and no matter what, she would come out the loser. Well... That's a huge fucking bummer, and we hear stuff like that all the time. 
And uh, Lord knows what would have happened had they taken this seriously, right? This isn't the first time we hear things like this. It won't be the last, uh, but it never ceases to be very agitating. I mean, sorry. Also, just his reasoning. He's a role model in the community. Like, God forbids, like, crack his squeaky clean exterior for something that he fucking did. Like... Yeah, it's so, um, it's really strange when you hear something like that. It's like, yeah, uh, you know who else was a role model? Jared from Subway. Yeah. (laughs) And are we going to defend him? Like, no, let's not out Jared from Subway's, uh, you know, He looks too good. He looks too good. Yeah, he's a weight loss inspiration. Are we really going to like send him to jail for pedophilia or like child pornography? Yes. We don't give a shit. And if, 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 uh upstanding person in the community, a role model, is a fucking sham, we should probably out them. I know. It's just so crazy. And like, it's funny having these actual quotes, you know, because it's like, you really picture a police officer saying that. And it really blows my mind. Because again, it's like, you're supposed to trust them and they're supposed to protect you. But it's like, uh, it, it, it's it's truly disgusting and abhorrent. I I can't believe it. I know it's it always like gives me the fucking icks where I'm like these yes. people are everywhere and boys people, will be boys. People enable them, which is really sad. You know. Yeah. Either way, according to school records, Vincent denied the allegations, um, and there was no record that he'd ever been disciplined for these allegations. Nice. However, he was later transferred to another school, but didn't face any disciplinary action at all. So if the red flags weren't glaringly obvious before, they certainly are now. Um, But my bigger question is now, like, how can you serve jail? So the first marriage, he served six days in jail for spousal abuse. How is that not something when you're going to be an assistant principal that doesn't show up? Like, Jail time, I think you shouldn't – I think if you've served jail and been found guilty of a crime – I mean, innocent until proven guilty. But if you've been found guilty, you shouldn't be able to re- be able to work with kids. No. Especially not for, like, domestic violence and or violence in general. Like, it's I, – I, I, I can't. It's anti-family. Like, I'm trying to think of, like, kids need the op- – kids need such careful nurturing – they need to be around stable, calm, consistent figures, right? To not be traumatized and have their childhoods fucked up so they don't turn into fucked up adults. Like, fucked up adults cannot be around kids, and we have to do everything we can to keep them away from kids. I just don't think people who have served jail should be working with kids, period. No, and especially not being a vice principal or a principal, because especially, you know, when you're younger, like in elementary school or even high school, like you look up and put those people on a pedestal. Like they are the top dog and they're taking care of the teachers who are taking care of the the students. Like to have a predator or an abuser in that kind of place of power is it's really scary. Absolutely. So it turns out that the police also learned that things with Joni and Vincent's marriage were a lot worse than they initially thought. So the cracks in their relationship started appearing all the way back to the first year of their marriage when Joni filed papers to have their marriage annulled. And even more interesting than the annulment was the reason why Joni wanted the marriage annulled. She cited fraud as the reason because apparently Vincent never told her about his other two marriages and his other child. That is not good. What sucks is that Joni gave birth to their child before they got married. So she was so locked into this already, you know, and women and men, I guess, too. If there's a child involved, you're so much more likely to give it a second, third, fourth chance. Of course. Because you're you're chasing 
you're chasing that dream of like giving your child both parents and whatever. So I really empathize with that where it's like, okay, she finds this out, whatever. But she followed through with the annulment. But things lingered and carried on between them. Um, So even though they quote unquote had officially split, they really actually stayed together. And then it took on the relationship, this on and off sort of identity, one of those relationships, right? It happened constantly. And even when they were together, there was a ton of infidelity on Vincent's side. He cheated on her constantly. But regardless of Vincent's cheating, Joni really loved him and decided to stick things out. Then they got pregnant with their second child while they were not officially together, right? The on and off stuff continued. But then finally, when they got pregnant with Marshall, their third child, who was six weeks old, when he was murdered along with the rest of this family, when they found out about that pregnancy, they got remarried legally. Um, Jesus. Yes. But then they continued to have issues. Um, And Vincent, you know, they continued. This was a non and off thing from the beginning. Right. So the new marital bliss obviously did not last long, and the couple fell back into this chaos and dysfunction. By April of 2003, Vincent and his mother-in-law, Ernestine, were at complete odds while living under the same roof, so much so that Vincent decided to get his own apartment so he could get some space. And Ernestine stayed and helped Joni with her three kids. Right. And in looking at the totality of the evidence in this case, the police didn't believe anyone else had motive to hurt this family besides Vincent which was really frustrating because the evidence to this point proved that he wasn't in the area and therefore could not have been responsible. But that all changed when they took a closer, more detailed look at this alibi with a much more critical eye. So what they decided to do was try to verify this alibi in other ways, right? So he had proof that he used his credit card on the day of the murders in Ohio. He had proof that his phone pinged in Ohio the day of the murders, right? But they were going to they were going to dig a little deeper. So what they did is they pulled camera footage from these retailers and locations that Vincent apparently had used his credit card and they were like we're going to pull up the footage, we're going to make sure it's Vincent, right? Yeah. So they do this. And one of these locations was Walmart. And Walmart has notoriously some of the best security in the game. They got they you. Got, <laughs> they got you. If you're in that store, they got you probably from 65 fucking angles. They got you in the like they got you wherever you go, right? Right. So they go to Walmart, they're like, let us see this footage. So when they pull up the footage, finally, and they sift through it and they pull up the time where he uses credit card, it wasn't fucking Vincent. It was Melvin. Melvin used the card. Oh my God. Mm. So the police obviously are now going to confront Melvin. And he admitted that he had made these purchases and forged his brother's signature. Like, what the hell? Mm. I can't... I, I, I don't know. So what else was Vincent planning? Because that is kind of some really premeditated, sketchy shit. Yeah. So when police take a closer First of look... All, why does your brother have your card? How would you even explain that? Because I would never... I would maybe, because we share business, Jack, like before you had your own business credit card, I was like, oh, take my card. Like there's no other excuse for me for ever sharing my credit cards or debit cards with anyone else. Unless you know something's going on. Unless you're trying to cover your tracks. And yeah, and that person is culpable.
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. When the police take a closer look at the phone records, they discovered that the reason that Vincent's phone pinged in Ohio on the day of the murders was because a call had been made from the brother's house to Vincent's cell phone. And even creepier is that this call was made after 1 p.m. on the Sunday of the slings. So this meant that the only person who could have made that call in the house from the house was the person who killed his family. Right. So it's looking more and more he like he thought of that. He's like, oh... If I call my phone, it'll look like my wife called me right. and that my phone is there. So he obviously right. left his cell phone in Ohio oh my God. and did – we also don't know how he did this, right? Because he was allegedly on the East Coast. So pretty pretty wacky, all like all together, right? So back to the police interview with Melvin, right? Because they find out that Melvin's using the card. How much else does Melvin know? So they're probing him for information and they find out that – Melvin had no idea where his brother was between July 4th and July 7th. So even though Vincent was allegedly visiting his brother, he had gone missing for three days within that visit. And one of the days was the day of the murder. And it was on July 8th that Vincent magically reappeared in Ohio. And that's when Vincent had the incredible idea to take his rental car that he was driving, that he got at the Ohio airport when he arrived, they were going to take his rental car and they were going to drive together to visit their mom in North Carolina, um, which is, you know, pretty interesting. So you're probably thinking to yourself like, okay, this guy, he's an asshole. He's a diabolical asshole. Obviously, he's responsible for all of this. But you're probably also wondering how he pulled it off. I certainly was at this point. Oh, yeah. Because um, Ohio is essentially on the East Coast. You're bordering Pennsylvania. I never really realized that. I always thought Ohio is Midwest. I but truly don't know where Ohio is. It's next to Pennsylvania. Um, it borders Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania, you almost think of the East Coast. So it's pretty fucking close to oh, yeah. the East Coast. So how um, how did he do this is the question, um, especially because Bakersfield is in California, you know, yeah. probably 2,500 miles away from where Ohio is. So what happened? So the police ended up piecing it all together. Vincent drove himself to the airport in Bakersfield and he left his car there. Once he landed in Ohio, Vincent then rented a car. And then they believe that Vincent drove right back to Bakersfield, which was proven by the 5,400 miles that he added on the rental car's odometer, which is crazy. It's so crazy. I just actually can't imagine. God, this sounds so exhausting. Like forget the horrible thing you're planning I would never plan something this elaborate without like an amazing payoff. And the murder of your family is not a payoff. The murder of your family is like life ruining for you and for several. It's evil. Like I just can't imagine doing some shit like this to just get myself. Even if it's for a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) At all. Like I don't. It's just wild. So get this. The detectives, they did some really good work. And they uncovered more than just the miles that were put on this rental car. 
which proved that Vincent had in fact made this cross-country drive for the purpose of annihilating his family. So the state consulted with an entomologist, and an entomologist is somebody who studies insects and bugs, et cetera, right? So when the rental car was taken into custody, they had it examined by one of these experts. And it turns out that in the air filter and in all of these other events, wherever else, the radiator, wherever else air gets sucked into the car, they found a ton of bugs. And when they examined the bugs, they realized that they were species that were only native to the Rocky Mountains and only come out at night. Um, and so that's something to consider. The Rocky Mountains obviously divide the east from the west coast. They go from like Colorado upwards, kind of. And mm-hmm. it's like, so if you're f- only having bugs in the Rocky Mountains, like your car never should have been over there. You claim to never leave the East Coast. Well, again, let's go back to our email from uh, Sagan, our lovely listener. Yeah. That Forensic Files episode was called Insect Evidence. So ah. this really is, that must have been the smoking gun for the investigators that really forensically proved that he was there. Well, because there's literally no other explanation. Like you can't, no. you can't fake, you know, science guys, you know, science. you can't fuck with science and bugs. They like where they like to be. They don't like to be in Ohio. These bugs like the Rockies, like how else would they have gotten there? So by this point, four months had passed since the murder of Joni, her mother and the children. And the police were sure that Vincent was now responsible for the murders. However, they waited to arrest him, hoping to get even more incriminating evidence against him. But they really started to worry that he was about to flee because he started selling everything that they owned and he even put the house on the market. Like, this is not a good sign. And investigators knew that they had to act and they had to act soon. If this guy was diabolical enough to murder his entire family in such a calculating, crazy way, he certainly had the cunning ability to make himself disappear and evade being prosecuted. So they decided they were going to make a move, and Vincent was arrested outside of the same house where he killed his wife, kids, and mother-in-law, and he was charged with five counts of first-degree murder. For those in this community, this arrest was shocking. Imagine the headlines. A well-loved assistant principal arrested for murdering, among other things, his three children. Like, that's unbelievable. Every parent's worst nightmare. You, you know, it's, no, did he hurt the children at the school? Not that we know, but if you're, you don't really like children if you can kill your own. Yeah. You don't really care about children if you can kill a child. You know, like this man was faking his entire life. He didn't give a shit about anyone. He climbed the ladder of success as a disguise so he could do evil shit. Like that's just what it is. And it's probably not a surprise that when Vincent was charged, he pleaded not guilty. Before the trial, his attorney spoke publicly, and he said that the real killer was Joni's lesbian love interest. So talk about a fucking curveball. This was another explosive reveal, but apparently, obviously, nobody believed it. So Joni was not only a loyal partner, but she was very religious, and no one who knew her entertained this idea like whatsoever. Right. And although it took a few years... Vincent's trial began in February of 2007 with heavy media attention focused on what was labeled as the biggest criminal trial in Bakersfield in decades. And get ready because the prosecution, they weren't messing around. They wanted to nail this guy to the wall and they dug really deep. They started by focusing on the motive that he had to kill his family. They pointed to his extramarital affairs, his shaky financial situation, and his lack of interest in supporting this seemingly growing 
family. They also accused Vincent of staging the crime scene because while the house looked ransacked, nothing had actually been taken. Nothing was missing. And things like cash, credit cards, jewelry, all had been left behind. Plus, like we said, no sign of forced entry. Um, And the only people with spare keys was Kelsey, who discovered the scene and was Joni's best friend, and Vincent. Prosecutors painted Vincent as a calculating killer. He thought he had dotted all of his I's and crossed all of his T's, and he thought that he had thought of everything. His credit cards were being used by his brother, pinging his own phone from the crime scene. If the police found DNA in the house, there would probably be an explanation for that. You know, he used to live there. If the police questioned him about the mileage of his rental car, he would have an explanation for that too. He thought he could plan a road trip to visit his mom and explain things away that way. And honestly, it worked at first, but the police thankfully finally caught on. Right. But you know how defense attorneys are. They weren't going to roll over that easily. They worked really hard to poke holes in the prosecution's case. And they claim the affairs that Vincent was having did not actually explain the motive for murder. And they pointed to the fact that no murder weapon had ever been recovered. And they also asked why there was no video of Vincent at any gas stations across the country. Shouldn't there have been if he had driven across the country in like one day or two, as they suggest? But like, I'm sorry, he put gas, he he had other gas cans in the car. Like, yeah. I think that's what the astronaut did who wore a diaper to go cross country to kill his, her lover's wife. Have you heard that one? No. Oh my God. We're going to cover that one next. So I'm not going to tell any more. Stay tuned for that one. But lots of people who, Jodi Arias, for example, like she drove from Utah, I think, or California to Arizona to kill Travis. And it's like, they put cans of gas in their trunk so they don't have to stop at a gas station. And be filmed. Yeah. Right. And if this guy's like planning to such a degree to do all this other shit, like obviously it's not that hard to think of. So obviously, please cut on. Right. And another thing that the prosecution found out was that Vincent didn't even really like his brother Marvin. In fact, prior this, to this trip to visit him, he hadn't seen him in over 10 years, which is probably why, I mean... That's Marvin turned on him? Quickly? Shocking. Yeah. And he's probably just like, fuck this guy. Imagine being like, hey, Marvin, I know we haven't talked or been friends in 10 years, but like on... July 6th. Will you please use, use my, my credit, credit card cards. somewhere? Yeah. Like, why don't you take yourself out and buy yourself something? I'd be like, what the fuck are you up to? Yeah. Something's going on. Yeah. So after months of testimony in May of 2007, the jury found Vincent guilty on all five counts of murder. As for the penalty, the jury voted that he should be put to death. And on September 27th, a judge agreed and sentenced him to death by lethal injection and forced to pay restitution for the funerals. He also had to pay over $17,000 for child support that he had not properly given to his first daughter, Margaret. At the sentencing hearing, Margaret said, I don't have a father now. He will never see me again until it's time to die, which is a very chilling statement. Well, imagine that being your dad, you know? Oh, it's, it's horrible. Well, imagine being the only child of his that wasn't – imagine, you know, Yeah. I just can't – I empathize with her so deeply. I mean, what yeah. a nightmare. So Vincent did not show any emotion during the hearing and is currently behind bars, San Quentin State Prison. Right. And I mean, if you've listened to us before and if you're into true crime, you probably already know that California has put an indefinite memorandum on execution. So it's likely that he will never be put to death. Um, You know, by 2024, we're supposed to eliminate executions and move all the death row inmates to other prisons 
you know, indefinitely. So California, he's not going to be put to death here. But I truly think someone like him, someone so narcissistic who would think his happiness matters more than five people's lives, I think he's suffering in prison. I think people like him suffer in prison. Yeah. Um, because he was thinking he could have it all and now he has nothing. So I, I think he's miserable and I can live with that. Yeah. I mean, I think by the way that he planned everything out, like he truly thought he was going to get away with it. So I don't think in even like a cell in his body thought that he was going to get caught. So, you know, rot in hell, motherfucker. And I almost love, like, I know the police didn't arrest him until four months after for their own reasons. It was like, you need more evidence. You want to have like an airtight case. But I almost love that for four months, he thought he was away. I know. Like, I kind of like love that. Like, even though it's like he shouldn't have been free for another fucking second after he did this. Yeah. I kind of love that for like a few months, his arrogance. He's like, I got this. I'm out. I'm going to like- got away with murder. Yeah. Nope. Out you go to San Quentin, bitch. Out you go. Well, that was such a crazy case. Um, thank you again, Sagan, for sending this in. And anybody listening, please email email us what cases you want us to cover and cases that you might have like a little bit of a connection to. We are going to do our best to start covering those going forward. That's right. And one more reminder, it doesn't matter what position of power people in, principal, crosswalk guard, police officer, doctor, there's there's narcissist psychopaths everywhere in every position. And it's not, how would you know, right? Like he only took this shit out on his family and wives, right? The people at the school couldn't have known, but they're out there and just, you know, love you all and watch your fucking backs. Yeah. Watch your backs. All right. Well, we will see you tomorrow on our feed. And then again, again, again on Thursday. Forever. All right. Bye guys. We love you. Bye. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.